Thank you, Fred. Appreciate Jim's devotion this morning. The wonderful words of our Lord. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. I'd like to read the Great Commission and its particular emphasis upon baptism as we begin to look at baptism as a means of grace. In Matthew 28, verse 16, we hear these words. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our Lord told his apostles to go and make disciples, disciple all the nations, to baptize those disciples made from all the nations, and then to teach them all that he commanded them to do. And so we see that he taught them how to have a right relationship to God, a right relationship to the church, and a right relationship to the Word of God. Let's pray together. Help us, we pray today, to come to you, Father, with thanksgiving in our hearts all the time, amazed at your kindness and grace, and that through Christ and the fullness of his redemption on our behalf, our eternity will be consisting of the many ways you have devised to show us greater kindness still. Help us to understand the magnitude of this salvation which our Lord has accomplished for sinners like us. And as we consider those days that we confessed our faith in Christ and were baptized, we ask that you would remind us of those days and what we believed, what we committed ourselves to, that we may be spurred on to faithfulness to our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are looking at um, our beliefs as Reformed Baptists about baptism as a means of grace. And I'm going to assume a number of things in this introduction uh, before I get to that. Um, that we are assuming the subjects of baptism to be disciples alone, as our confession teaches, that the proper mode of baptism, as stated in our confession, is the immersion of the believer, the confessor, in water. And I have chosen the terminology in this, uh, in this presentation from the confession on a couple of things. One is to describe baptism as an ordinance 
I do not believe it's wrong to apply the term sacrament to it, but that is not so done in our confession, and so I'll stick with that. And the second thing I've chosen in the terminology is to call baptism a sign, because that is what our confession uses to describe baptism over the term seal. And certainly we know that circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of the faith that Abraham had while uncircumcised, but the use of the term seal in the New Testament is primarily reserved for the the work of the Holy Spirit in that baptism of the Holy Spirit when we're regenerated and sealed in Him. And so I want to stick to the terminology of the confession and I can only assume that uh, there was a reason our forefathers did that because certainly amongst them there were uh, other uh, terminologies and, and words and concepts of baptism in some ways that are not included in the chapter on the, uh, on the ordinances and on baptism itself. So, what does the confession say about baptism as a means of grace? That is, how does it work as a means to strengthen the faith of the believer? What does it proclaim as the Lord's Supper proclaims the death of our Lord till He comes? What, what does it represent? Well, we have actually a greater explanation in the confession on the meaning and of the Lord's Supper than we do of baptism. And I believe, though, that we can conclude that both being ordinances under the same heading, we can look at the Lord's Supper and understand a bit about the concept of baptism as a means of grace that our forefathers had in mind. And that is that the faith of the believing one is strengthened through the use of the means of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we uh, look to that as our beginning. For the purpose of brevity, I'll make some assumptions about baptism, not cover them. First, we're, by the way, there's someone that has written a good book on that you might consider. Um, first, we are to baptize disciples alone. Only those who understand the gospel have repented of sin and who confess their faith as new disciples of Jesus Christ that they have trusted in Him should be baptized. That is, they were first converted to Christ through repenting and believing in Him as Lord. And then they were baptized. This is the only baptism that has been positively instituted uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles in accordance with the regulative principle of worship under which baptism comes. And it is this principle and the understanding of our Baptist forefathers to apply this principle to the ordinances that is in reality the foundational principle of the Baptist church. And we need not forget that because the regulative principle is essential to our formation and our uh, continued worship and fellowship together.
Second, baptism is to be performed by immersion alone. If we believe that this is clearly the biblical mode, then we should practice it this way. And I believe the passive voice of the verb indicates that the subjects were themselves baptized, not themselves sprinkled or poured. And as a result, we have, I believe, a clear grammatical understanding of baptism as dipping the subject. Third, the administration of baptism to confessing disciples does not confer uh, ex aperi operato uh, any benefits upon the one baptized through the act itself alone. It assumes that repentance and faith, evidences of regeneration by the Holy Spirit already exist in the one baptized, as we see in the Great Commission. Baptized them. Who? Those who were made disciples from the nations and teaching them to do all that Christ commanded. And fourth, even though some Baptists have held a broader position, the confession teaches that the baptizer is assumed to be authorized by the local church alone to perform the ordinance. The Lord gave the Great Commission to baptize disciples alone to the apostles, who then passed on the work to the church to the end of the age, to carry on their work after their departure. And this means that baptism is a church ordinance, and it must be performed only by those whom the church judges qualified and and, and authorizes. Paragraph 28 One in the confession reads, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution, appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. Paragraph 2, these holy appointments are to be administered by those only who are qualified and thereunto called according to the commission of Christ. So we find that the confession has many teachings about baptism, but it calls baptism literally one of the means of grace as an ordinance instituted by Christ himself and a sign to the party baptized. Now, we're not saying that grace in itself uh, is given in the act of baptism as a physical act. Grace is not a substance, as as, uh, Dr. Renahan brought out very clearly Yesterday, It's not a substance or power that's um, deposited or, or distributed through ordinances controlled by the church. Grace is the sovereign gift of God, received through faith alone, in Christ alone, and strengthened in its working through the responsibility of the believer to use the means of Christian growth in grace. However, we are saying that the Scripture teaches that baptism is more than just a memorial of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is more than just an act of obedience to His command, as some Baptists hold. It means something. We're saying this, that when baptism is performed by one so authorized by the church, 
that when repentance and faith are in the heart of the confessing disciple, that God uses baptism as a means to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers observing, to confirm the blessings of what baptism represents to the one receiving baptism, and to strengthen the faith of observing believers by proclaiming to them again the blessings of the gospel they received once for all upon their faith conversion to Christ. And when the Holy Spirit applies this proclamation of the gospel through the act of baptism and its meaning and the explanation of what it means, it becomes more than a means of grace. It becomes an effectual means of grace to the one who has faith in the Lord Jesus. Baptism is defined this way. Baptism in the confession is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be into the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection of his being engrafted into him of remission of sins and giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So first of all, uh, is baptism a means of grace? Second, what is the meaning of baptism as a means of grace? How is it a means of grace? And then finally, I'd like to bring a couple of applications about baptism as a means of grace to us. So first, is baptism a means of grace? And the confession itself so describes baptism. In chapter 14 on saving faith, this paragraph is paragraph 1. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe in the, to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. So is baptism a means of grace? It is so designated in that chapter and paragraph. It explains that saving faith comes to the elect by the ministry of the Word of God, and the work of the Spirit together in their hearts through regeneration. Baptism is one of the means appointed by God to strengthen and increase the faith of the one baptized or the one observing the baptism. In other words, baptism is a means of grace to those already converted to Christ who have been saved by grace through faith. Now, some Baptists have included baptism as a means of grace as part of conversion itself. And I realize that there are good men that differ upon this. But the confession does not so state it this way. Louis Burkhoff describes conversion to Christ as the repentance and faith of the regenerate. And I agree with that position. We are born again by God's Holy Spirit. And the first act 
is to repent and believe and be converted to Christ, to be turned. Baptism is the outward sign that one has turned of one's conversion to Christ and a confession that one has been previously converted. To make baptism a part of conversion disturbs me to some degree because I think it may face the danger, though well-meaning, of attributing to baptism a part of salvation itself, thereby confusing the unique truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. The confession does not include baptism as part of conversion. Chapter 20, paragraph 4, Although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and is as such abundantly sufficient thereunto, yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened or regenerated, there is moreover necessary an effectual, uh, an effectual, effectual insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul for the producing to them, in them, a new spiritual life, without which no other means will affect their conversion unto God. So I do not believe the confession includes baptism as part of conversion, but rather as a means of grace for the strengthening and increasing of the faith of the believing one. It is a disciple's baptism. Second, the apostles used baptism as a means of grace in their instructions to believers. This is part of his baptism a means of grace. And um, I'll go into that further in a few moments, but it has struck me over the years how often Paul used believer's baptism or the baptism of the believer as a means to spur disciples to pursue holiness to argue for Christian unity and love, to illustrate the regeneration of the Spirit as a seal of our salvation, to assure the believer that Christ's atonement is sufficient, and so forth. There are many ways the apostles used baptism in order to instruct and teach and increase the faith of disciples in regarding to different matters of the Christian life. And in so doing, they proclaim the meaning of baptism and call to believers their remembrance of their previous baptism. And as God's Word is used by the Holy Spirit to remind them of what it meant and what it means, what they did, what they are doing now, the Holy Spirit uses that proclamation about baptism to increase and strengthen the faith of the believer in their spiritual growth. Let me give you one instance where Paul uses baptism uh, to uh, encourage believers to Christian unity. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, after giving three chapters of wonderful doctrinal instruction on the grace of God, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's going back there 
to their original conversion to Christ. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is but one example where Paul calls Christians back uh, to the foundations of their faith and particularly uses baptism to remind them of what happened when God came into their, into their life and saved them by His grace and what blessings flowed from that. And that they confessed one Lord and one faith and also they had one baptism to join them together in the community of God's people and to make them one in Christ. And they are therefore to pursue that unity in remembrance of baptism and what it means. And so he uses baptism as a means of grace to strengthen and increase the faith of disciples. This is just one example where Paul did this, but we will look at others later. So, is baptism a means of grace? I believe it is by statement in uh, our confession as it's describing the means of grace. And, and certainly uh, there are examples in the New Testament where baptism is used as a means uh, to preach the grace of God, to increase the faith and strengthen the faith of disciples. But second, let's consider further the meaning of baptism as a means of grace. How exactly does it function as a means of grace. Well, the baptism of Christ and His apostles was a baptism of repentance from sin and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism was a sign to the party baptized of that full salvation accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paragraph 29.1 in the Confession, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of His fellowship with Him in His death and resurrection, of His being engrafted into Him, of remission of sins, and of giving up unto God and through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. That is the meaning of baptism as a means. So I'd like us to look first at it as a sign, a representation and confirmation to the party baptized of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection and of his being engrafted in him by the Spirit of God. Baptism represents union with Christ by faith in his accomplished work upon the cross. When he spoke to his disciples of his coming death, he called his suffering a baptism which he must be baptized with. And in so doing, he associated the visible act of baptism 
as a sign of His full redeeming work. So that we can never think of baptism again without thinking of His baptism into death on our behalf. The first references to this paragraph in the Confession are Romans 6, 3-5, Colossians 2.12, and Galatians 3.27. And I'd like to just read how they understood, our forefathers understood baptism as a, a sign of fellowship with Christ in His death and resurrection and of being engrafted uh, in him, into Him by the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 6, 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. We are by faith united to Christ in the baptism of His death upon the tree, of His burial, and of His resurrection. And through faith alone in Christ alone, this baptism that we uh, take on confession of our faith becomes that visible sign that we have been united with Him forever. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And we could stand here and debate whether it's speaking of Christ's death as a circumcision, which it certainly was, a cutting off of the flesh, but whether it is speaking of the fulfillment of what circumcision represented in the Old Testament, and that is cutting off the flesh of the human heart that we have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ, having been born again from above. And so he continues, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him, through faith in the working of God. This passage forever associates baptism and our participation in it and what it represents in our union with Christ. It, ever, it, it forever makes clear that in our baptism, faith has been operative. Faith in the working of God to uh, apply to us the person and work of Christ on our behalf. This is not just baptism without any kind of response of the recipient. This is a baptism that requires faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. For all of you, it says in Galatians 3.27, 
who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So baptism is a sign to the party baptized of his or her union with Christ. Union in his person, uh, spiritually speaking, by the Holy Spirit, but especially union with him in his work, so that his work for us ever becomes that which we appeal to toward God. We have in the Lord Jesus Christ a perfect Savior. And that baptism He went through on Calvary's hill must always take precedence in our minds and hearts when we consider the act of baptism. For what it represents is Him and His great love for us and the Gospel that has been brought to us. Secondly, it is a sign of the remission of sins. The confession references Mark 1.4 and Acts 22.16 to establish this, uh, this meaning. Mark 1.4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Acts 22.15, Ananias came to Paul and said, For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. The idea of forgiveness of sins is attached to the meaning of baptism in the idea of the washing away and cleansing of sin. The early church fathers sometimes mistakenly identified baptism itself as the act of washing away of sins, thus paving the way for the doctrine of baptismal regeneration that has many times plagued the church since. Baptism is a sign. It is a symbol, a representation to the party baptized that their sins have been previously washed away through repentance and faith in Christ. It is a confirmation of the confession of their faith to have depended upon Christ alone for the cleansing of sin. And therefore, God the Holy Spirit uses the meaning of baptism in the act of baptism to apply the confirmation and assurance to the heart of the believer that their sins have been forgiven. But it has no power in itself or in the act of it to accomplish either the atonement of sin or the washing away of sins in and of itself. For the sacraments, the ordinances, have no meaning apart from the faith of the recipient. And so in the act of baptism, the believer in Christ is called to remember the sufficiency of the blood and righteousness of Christ to cleanse them from their sin and to pronounce them accepted as righteous before God by faith alone in Christ alone. And therefore, it is a means of grace in that it calls the baptized to be assured of the work of Christ. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God that we may grow in our faith and our assurance of the sufficiency of Christ for our soul. 
First Peter 3.16, Peter was dealing with the suffering Christian in the world and particularly in bearing a faithful witness so that they may give a good account of the hope that is in them. And he said in verse 16, Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And so he brings in the issue of keeping a good conscience in our Christian life, of walking in integrity, of, of being faithful in, what we, uh, in how we live, and how we speak, how we appear to others. And further down in verse 21, he adds corresponding to that, uh, speaking of the preaching of the gospel in the days of Noah, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not an appeal for a good conscience in the act of baptism physically, but in what it represents. Our Lord Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead on our behalf. So baptism is a means of grace and a sign of the remission of our sins and that we appeal to God for a good conscience that we are depending on Him alone. And baptism represents that. Baptism further is a sign of the believer's giving himself up to God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. And, and uh, once again, uh, Romans 6, uh, 3 and 4 is used as a reference to this part of the confession. Romans 6, 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism represents not only the cleansing of sin, union and with Christ, uh, the death uh, to uh, the condemnation to the law and to the domination of sin, but also that we should walk in newness of life. The baptism into death which Christ endured for us, from which He rose victoriously to teach the baptized one that all that has been accomplished in His redemption for them, that they have been raised also from the dead and from the curse of hell to walk in newness of life. As we think as we remember, as we consider that which it represents, we are called by its very nature and meaning to turn from sin and turn to walk in newness of life. He continues in Romans 6, 5, For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. This also is part of the union we have in Christ, our death to sin, our being raised to walk in newness of life, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Baptism represents this. And so in reminding the Romans of their former baptism and all that it represents 
in union with Christ. Baptism becomes in the preaching to those who have long been baptized. The means of grace to spur them on to a holy and Christ-like life. And when the Holy Spirit applies this word about baptism to the believer's heart, his living faith is increased and strengthened to walk in faithfulness to Christ. It is a means of grace. I would add one more thing to the meaning of baptism as a means of grace. It is a sign of the believer's future resurrection from the dead in glorification. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. The older I get, though I'm not as old as Tom is, I, I think more about the resurrection of the dead. And it just so happens that the Apostle Paul thought about it too. In Philippians chapter 3, where he counts all things as loss, verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That certainly is the resurrection of the soul. That is the, the new birth the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Verse 11, He says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This was not some distant, vague hope that Paul kept in the back of his mind as he lived each day. This was at the heart of his hope when he first came to Christ. And it remained in his heart and mind to spur him on to live in Christ alone, to live by faith alone, to believe in the sufficiency of Christ as his Savior, and that part of that great salvation is not just justification by faith and the help of the Spirit in sanctification through the means he's given, but that, in fact, there is a day coming when he will be bodily raised from the grave and conform perfectly to the image of Christ, to live forever at his side. And I believe baptism represents that. For it is based upon the death and resurrection of Christ and all of the benefits that come. How often do you think of your baptism and what it represents to you? How often do you use the baptism of the believer to comfort them, to exhort them, to confront them, to walk in newness of life, to comfort them that there is a day when there shall be no more mourning or tears or sighing or pain. That there is a day coming when all things will be made new as we are called through the resurrection of Christ to walk in newness of life now. There is so much in this sign of baptism that teaches us of how we are to live now And what is yet to come? The Baptist faith and message of the Southern Baptists adds these words to their meaning of baptism in chapter 7. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. And there are other Baptist groups that have included that reference to the future resurrection. A believer's baptism by immersion and immersion 
signifies his or her future resurrection from the dead, a sign that those whom God foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son fully. And that all those who have been predestined, He effectually called to that salvation. And all whom He effectually called, He justified. And all whom He justified, He also glorified. How can we leave that out of the meaning of baptism? when baptism itself represents the perfect work of Christ for ourselves. Believers' baptism signifies all these things. And as the Lord's Supper proclaims His death until He comes again in glory, baptism proclaims the work of Christ for man. The baptized believer awaits that final day. And we Baptists need to, I believe, restore this understanding to the candidate before they're baptized and to the congregation who observes. What rejoicing there would be upon each baptism never to become perfunctory again in the church. In understanding the Word of God's teaching about baptism and its meaning and in the work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten the Word proclaimed in baptism to the one baptized. This means of grace becomes effective or effectual in strengthening their faith and to give them a greater resolve to live no longer for themselves but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so Paul could use baptism to explain that it also represents the divine work of the Holy Spirit in all believers to make salvation effectual to the very end. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And so the act of baptism is a means of grace to the one baptized. It's a means of grace to those believers who have been baptized previously. And it is a means of grace in that it proclaims the truth of the gospel to any unbelievers who may be observing. And when applied by the Holy Spirit to the heart, the meaning of baptism as a sign of the work of Christ actually increases and strengthens the faith of the one baptized, the one observing, uniting both in a common faith, a common Savior, a common church, and a common future. And in so doing, it calls the unbeliever present to repent and believe the gospel which it represents. Finally, there's a couple of applications I want to bring in closing. Practical applications, and there are many that we could we could bring, and, and of course you know that, but 
because baptism, first of all, is a visible sign of the gospel of Christ, I believe that we should proclaim the gospel when we baptize. You might say, well, that's obvious. No, it's not. Yet this is, in fact, what our Lord and His apostles did before they baptized. Look through our Lord's teachings in the Gospels before His disciples baptized. Look in the book of Acts and see how the Gospel was proclaimed before the act of baptism. You can say, well, that was an evangelistic setting. How different is that from a person who has confessed faith in Christ and is baptized in the church, I ask? Should we dare baptize a believer in Christ without explaining the gospel that they have confessed? Without instructing what this baptism means to them? What it means to us? What it means as a witness to the world? In many modern Baptist churches, baptism is a perfunctory rite performed at the beginning or ending of a worship service, often without any instruction to its meaning. When I observe such baptisms periodically and going away, there's a huge hole in my heart that remains with me. That something wonderful has been missed for the one baptized and those observing. But if baptism is really one of the elements of regulated worship, should we not include it in the worship service proper and explain its meaning before the act is performed? How else can the Word of God explained be used by the Holy Spirit to increase and strengthen the faith of those baptized if we do not give its rightful place in the worship. In Clinton, and this is, I'm just saying what we do, that's all I'm doing, but by conviction, we always perform baptism in the middle of the worship service. Because I just don't want to do it at the beginning or end anymore. I've seen too much of that. We perform it in the middle of the worship service to make sure it's understood to be one of the elements of worship and a means of grace. And we always explain the meaning of baptism and what it represents and what it means to confess Christ to the one baptized. And we always call the previously baptized who are observing to remember their baptismal confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and the commitments they made, the promises they made, and to consider how they have kept them to this day. That this baptism may become a means to call them once again to needed repentance and a wholehearted following of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also... And we also, in this baptism, call those who may be unbelieving yet, observing, to repent and believe the gospel which this baptism represents and signifies.
And then because the New Testament ordinarily adds the baptized immediately to the church, we vote to receive the baptized into fellowship of the body of Christ at that moment to associate what I believe is true, that baptism is an ordinance of the church and that it is those who are baptized, they have the duty of joining themselves immediately to the body of Christ. I pray that our Baptist churches will treat baptism more seriously across the land as a means of grace. I'd like to clarify the meaning of baptism. I mean, I would like to... I'm two minutes over. I'm going to take a couple, okay? Just to say, sometimes baptism is performed quickly as it was in the book of Acts. Ordinarily in the New Testament, believers' baptism was performed immediately after the confession of repentance and faith in Christ. And therefore, some Baptists have advocated immediate baptism of all who say they have been saved followed by immediate church membership. This is still in debate even among some some brethren who have accepted the doctrines of grace. However, there are extenuating circumstances in the New Testament which are not present today. Those baptized by John and Jesus and the apostles on the day of Pentecost were at first Jews and Gentiles, God-fearers, who usually had a much deeper understanding of the nature of God and His Word than the average person today. They were familiar with the Old Testament. They understood the Ten Commandments and what sin is. They understood the need of atonement by bloody sacrifice. The need of repentance toward God. The concept of a people of God in covenant with Him. The need of a righteousness before God to be accepted by Him. And the call to a holy life. In our society, even, I'm sad to say, by some within our good churches, many are hard-pressed to find even church members who understand those basic things still and who are living in accordance with the commandments of God. To immediately baptize those who are ignorant of the gospel in past, have little idea of the Ten Commandments they are, being, they are committing to obey, and who may be confused about grace versus works still for salvation, is not the same situation as the New Testament examples we have. We need to make sure that people understand the gospel and the call to discipleship before we baptize them. And this may necessitate a brief delay of baptism to instruct them. And such an approach is not a contradiction of the biblical examples of Acts simply because our Lord commanded us to make disciples before we baptize them. They have to understand the gospel. If we believe that a person is saved before baptism, yet still ignorant of some of the basics of discipleship, still unclear about what it means to live a godly life, there is nothing lost to make sure their baptism is with a real knowledge of Christ and His Gospel. And one word about baptizing children. We believe that God can save at any age. Therefore, we must be careful. Uh, However, we must be careful of baptizing little ones who are simply trying to please their parents or become part of a group. 
we must require the same knowledge of Christ and the gospel. Repentance from sin, faith in Christ, and the desire to live a holy life that we require of the older ones only at a child's simple level. They must understand some things. And both parents and pastors must work together to do good to the souls of our children. But on the other hand, neither must we put off the baptism of our little ones that confess Christ because of some arbitrary age requirement that we place upon them. Rather, we just must be careful as we should be with any others. In summary, the proper practice of believers' baptism is a fundamental block for the building of a committed church membership. And our concept of building a regenerate church membership based upon a good confession of Christ and a commitment to live fully for His glory and faithfully requires carefulness. And so may God grant us great wisdom to carry on our reformation of truth in building churches that are based upon uh, the truths of God's Word and the proper practice of believing, believers' baptism as a means of grace. And I believe that if we do not guard that, which is really in many ways the open portal of the organization of our churches and association, that we will at some time lose the meaning of Christ, which it represents. Is baptism a means of grace? Absolutely. It is an ordinance of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, to be unto the party baptized a sign of His fellowship with Him in His death and resurrection, of His being engrafted into Him, of remission of sins, and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So let us walk. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this wonderful gift that You have given us and pray that You would help us to use it wisely and that Your Holy Spirit would cause us to grow in grace and faith and the knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.